Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Jeff. If you're new, newish to Oak City Church, I'm normally the guy that's teaching. I'm not um, this week. Um, we're, we're in a series for a few weeks on home groups, and so Ken and Dan are taking a handful of these weeks, and I'm taking one of these weeks. Um, and Ken and Dan are the guys that are in charge of our home groups and relaunching our home groups, and they're doing a fantastic job. And um, Dan did a great job last week. If you weren't here last week, you should take a listen on the podcast to that message, uh, just about really basic about the, the importance of that. There are things that um, about church that you can't experience on a Sunday morning gathering, and home groups are the way that we and a, and a whole lot of other churches choose to do that. And um, and so we're just talking about that for these five weeks and would really encourage you if you haven't been a part of a home group in the past to check one out uh, during this time. We, there, there's a board out in the lobby and it has a list of all those groups and there's a little card with information for those groups. And, and some of that's just brand new because uh, one of the, one, like a whole group of people met last Sunday night and kind of figured out what they're going to do. And so now there's one at North Hills and there's one and, um, that's going to be um, down here in, inside the Beltline somewhere. And um, and there's a couple of groups that are now meeting on Sundays, and that's been a problem for some folks. So just check that out and would strongly encourage you to, to find a home group during these few weeks and engage this series and, um, and check out a few different ones uh, if you want to. So um, please do that. A couple other, just a couple of announcements. This is so family technical stuff, but your giving statements, your tax statements should have gone out in, they should be in your email and should have gone out Friday night, I think. Right, Greg? And so if you don't have those, um, let me know. I'll let Greg know, and we'll get that stuff to you. But check your email to find that. And, um, and we have a membership class coming up next Saturday morning. Um, membership, like we live in kind of an anti-membership, a radically individualistic anti-membership type culture. But church is something that you're, it's a body. Um, it is a, a Christ calls it a flock, you know, and so it's something that is defined and you're a part of it and you commit to it. And so this class is three hours, gives you a chance to ask whatever questions you want to about Oak City Church and find out a bit more about where we came from, um, where we're headed to and what really matters to us. And then you have a chance to, to covenant with us and join as a member of the church. And so um, if Oak City, if you think, man, Oak City is my church, then you should come to this and uh, you should let us make the case for joining uh, officially as a member and, and why that, that's important. So that's this coming Saturday, we'll run, we run that a handful of times a year, um, three hours. And so email me, I think is what it says. Oh, no, you can sign up um, and on uh, the website. You can sign up and, um, and let us know that you're coming. Okay, I think that's all my announcements. If you could take out one of these Connect cards, these are in front of you. If you've been here, we've been doing this. And, um, but I'm never the one that introduces this. We, about six months ago, let me tell you how this happened. I'm not supposed to do this because it's going to take a little bit longer than it's supposed to. And so I'm sorry. But John Pritchett went to, um, who's the guy that melts your face on the guitar here, like about every other week. He went to Hillsong in Australia. And he, um, and so he called me when he got back. And so Hillsong's a big deal. And, and uh, he said, and so he called me because he thought this was funny that, um, they, when they're, they did these cards, but then when their pastor came up, they gave their pastor a standing ovation. He's like, we should do that at Oak City Church. I'm like, okay, on the list of things that are never, ever going to happen, that's it. And so, but that's why he called me. But then he said, they do these prayer cards where they just ask people to write down a prayer request every week and then they pass them in and they're a little bit more charismatic. So like everybody leans their hands in as they're praying for the cards, um, 
uh, which was also something we're probably not going to do, but, but we could. And, but they pray generically for the cards, and then someone prays for the cards. And we were like, as we're on the phone, I'm like, that's a good, like, every church should do that. And so, like, within three weeks, we're doing that. And so this is, like, it is a connect card. If you're brand new, on the bottom, there's a, I'm new to Oak City Church. I'd like to get more information. So we'd love for you to check that box so we can get you some more information. We actually got a gift for you by the tree out there. And so if you're brand new, we'd like to give you a gift and, and just shake your hand. Um, and so it's connect that way, but it really lets us connect with, with you. And so, um, I get these cards about every three weeks and I take a walk in my neighborhood and pray for these cards. And like, I love praying for you guys and being able to be specific in those prayers, um, for you. But it also like, I can tell people are connecting. And so you're just going to get a minute now, two minutes just to write down your prayer request and to write down like things you want to praise God for. And just some quiet for you to connect with the Lord. So please take a minute. Um, give us something to pray for, you know, write down something that you're thankful for that we can rejoice with you about, and then we'll pass those in in a minute, and Rebecca will come up and pray with us. I'm going to take a moment just to pray over the cards and the service, and then we'll enter into um, praying through Psalms 25 together. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us all here today. Um, Thank you for putting our concerns forward to you and giving us the opportunity to pray over them specifically and for those that are unsaid or unknown how to be said. Please just speak to our hearts and let us know how to pray um, and that we are being prayed for. Father, I ask that you speak through Ken um, in delivering the sermon. Open his mind to say what it is that you want him to say, and open our hearts to hear what it is that you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So I believe Andy's going to come through and collect the cards. And if you'll join me, we're going to read through Psalms 25 together. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let my enemies not exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that should he choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. 
O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Amen. Good morning. So as Jeff mentioned, my name is Ken Cantrell. I'm one of the elders here, and along with Dan, helping to kind of lead and mentor the home groups right now. And as he mentioned, we're in a series on home groups. We're on week two of five. And I thought before I go on into new content for today, it would be good to just kind of review, especially if you're new to home groups, if you haven't been here for the start, kind of the idea of home groups and what Dan talked about last week. And it, yeah, if you're, if you're looking, I wasn't going to say anything. I, I've got two clickers today. One is for my laptop and one is for the one in back. So we'll see how this goes. And it's not going great. All right. So it begins with the idea that a church is not a building. Our language is really, really bad because our language says things like, hey, we're going to go to church. But it's terrible because a church is not a building. Instead, a church is the followers of Jesus. And more than that, a church, according to Scripture, is the body of Christ. Now, that's a strange thing to say, the, the church is the body of Christ. So I want to show you where it comes from and then talk a little bit about what it means. So from Ephesians, it says, and he, so what I've done here is I've replaced pronouns with what the pronouns is pointing to because there's a lot of pronouns in the Bible, just to make it easier. So the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. So God made Jesus the head of the church, And the church is Jesus's body, the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. And then later in 1 Corinthians, we read, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And for us, men or women, young or old, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what your background is. If you are a follower of Christ, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's a lot different than a building. I mean, this is, this is completely different. Somehow, spiritually, we, the church, are Jesus' hands holding and serving. We're his feet going, his heart shown on display, his eyes to see, his mouth to proclaim. That's not a building. And if we're honest, I don't think most of us, if we're told you are the body of Christ, really feel qualified or equipped to be the body. I'd be clear, it doesn't matter whether we feel qualified or not, we are the body of Christ. But I think, you know, it's worth acknowledging some of that tension. And part of the problem, I think, is that meeting here on Sundays isn't necessarily enough to encourage us and challenge us, train us, support us to meet the challenge of what it means to be the body of Christ. I I think we have to be here. Being here on Sundays is important because this is the time where we worship together and we pray together, we're taught and we learn together, but I don't think it's enough. So if we have this tension 
We're meant to be the body of Christ. It's good to know what it means to be the body of Christ. And Sundays aren't enough. Then where do we get the rest? So there's all sorts of ways that people solve this in different churches. And there's even other ways that we, we help with that here at Oak City. But one way that we do it here is we supplement our time on Sundays, not replace our time on Sundays, but we supplement it by meeting together in people's homes throughout the week to learn what it means to be the body of Christ together. And that's what we call home groups. So our formal name for home groups, our definition, is a group of people committed to each other's spiritual growth. So last week, Dan started our sermon series talking about home groups. It was, it was great. If you haven't listened to Dan's sermon, if you weren't here, you should go back and listen to the podcast because I thought it was great. Um, but he gave us a picture of some of the first three people that we meet in the, the town of Philippi who are brought into the Christian faith and who very likely were some of the very first people who were ever in the church in Philippi. And for all intents and purposes, probably we're almost certainly meeting together and use that to give us some of the challenges of what it means to come together. And he also gave us some of the outputs, like what do we want to get out of the church? What do we want to get out of home groups, at least in part? This is what he gave us, the the idea that as a church, through meeting together, we should grow in our understanding of the Bible. As a church, we should be more like Jesus. As a church, we should pursue Christian community. And we worried about like how to phrase this. It's not be in Christian community, but we should be encouraged to actively pursue it as well. And then to make disciples. That as a church, we should be taught and encouraged and given opportunities to make disciples. So today, we're going to talk more about the grow in our understanding of the Bible. And then over the next three weeks, we'll take each one of the others in turn. So in addition to uh, having control over my own slides, I like to be fairly organized. So the way we're going to walk through this today is we're going to talk about why this, why is growing our understanding of the Bible one of the things we want to get from home groups. And then we're going to talk about something I'm going to call the meta-narrative, which I'll explain in a minute, and then a tool for understanding the Bible. I'm pretty sure it'll make sense where we are, but if you get lost, look down in the corner because it should tell you down in the corner kind of where we are. So why... Grow in our, in our understanding of the Bible. So Dan said this last week. That in addition to a church not being a building, a home group is not fundamentally a Bible study. But I think the Bible study has to be part of what we do together as a home group. A home group is a group of people committed to one another's spiritual growth. But growth, like growth in what? Growth towards what? How do we know Presumably, we're growing towards Christ or we're growing in Christ. We're growing towards being a a healthy body and not away from it. But again, how do we know what a healthy body looks like? The culture as a whole is not going to tell you what a healthy Christian body looks like. So we get our pictures of what that looks like from Scripture. It's the clearest picture of what it means to be the body of Christ. I think that's fairly self-evident. So if that's where we get our picture from, then that's kind of what we should be studying. But this isn't just me. This is biblical as well. So again, the letter of Philippians, this was the letter that Paul wrote to that church in Philippi we talked about last week. Right near the beginning, he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. 
I'm going to hit the last part, to the glory and praise of God, because whatever we're doing, if it's not leading us towards the glory and praise of God, it's not what we should be doing. So we don't gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. If we're just doing it to get smart and look how much, you know, hey, look at me, I know the Bible. Wrong reason, right? All of our knowledge should be leading us towards giving glory and praise of God. But he does say, your love may abound more and more with knowledge. And so he's encouraging them, gain knowledge of what? Gain knowledge of who you are, of who God is, of your place in that story. Gain knowledge of the gospel. And so I think we're called to do that together. So if that's what we're called to do, then let's move on to this next section about the meta narrative. So this is kind of a weird word. You may not have heard the word before. It didn't show up. I didn't know this. It didn't show up to like the 1970s. Guy wrote a paper on postmodernism, coined the word somewhere in there. Um, but it's a word that gets used a lot nowadays. And basically, the meta-narrative is the story about all the other stories, the story beyond the other stories, the, the, big, the big story that connects all the little stories together. Because there really is a big story in the Bible. There really is a meta-narrative that connects it together from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, there's... There's a lot of different ways to tell this story. But I think if we're going to study the word together, it's useful for us to at least all hear one way of telling that story together as a whole that we can kind of talk through. And, you know, that kind of gives us a... The stories we tell ourselves, they shape a lot of who we are. So, like, the, the reason that we know for why we exist, that... that affects things like why do we get married? How do we raise our children? How do we react to tragedy? So just having a common understanding of the story, I think is useful. But, <laughs> um, I didn't give myself a lot of time pre- to prep for the sermon. And I told Jeff, I said, this one's going to be easy. I got this. This was so much harder to put together than I thought it was going to be. And I think part of that is because we just don't talk about this story enough. We, we think we know it. If you're in church, we think we know it, but we don't put it into words all that often. And it can be hard to put this together. So as I go through this, you might think to yourself, how would I tell the big story of the Bible? Because it's one of the things we're going to ask you to do in home groups this week is as a home group, take turns telling the big story of the Bible. And it doesn't have to sound like the way I do it. So kind of think how you might. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to start with the Old Testament. Then I'm going to look at the New Testament. And the way I'm going to try to tell this is I'm I'm going to try to connect it in with various books of the Bible so that as we study the Bible, it makes more sense. And I'm going to use a pattern that if you've been at Oak City for a while, you'll recognize. I'm going to use creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, which we haven't talked about much recently, but we're going to get to. So creation. First verse of the Bible is Genesis 1-1, and that reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I figured the good place to tell a story is at the beginning, and this is the beginning. It's the beginning of everything. I think we learn three things at the very, very beginning that are worth mentioning. The first off is that this is God's story, not our story. We're not even in the story. God is the only character that is in this story from beginning to end. So as we read through the story of the Bible, we have to recognize it's his story, not ours. Secondly, God created And part of what I take from this is that there is a God, and that's not us. And that God is the creator, and that we are the creation. And that gives him, whether we want him to have it or not, 
that gives him some authority over us. And the third thing that I take from this is that phrase, in the beginning, there's going to be stuff in this book that we're just not going to get. I mean, in the beginning... What are you saying? Like, how do you even talk about the beginning before there's time? Like, what, what's before the start of something? Because the start is the start. It, it, it makes my mind hurt. It makes my brain hurt. And I think that's fair. Because I said before, we have tiny little bitty brains, and we're worshiping an infinite God. And I think at some level, it's arrogant to think that we, as we study the Word, are going to get, totally get, an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. And so I just kind of want to acknowledge that because I think some people, when they read the Bible, they say, oh, this just doesn't make sense, and they throw it out. They just throw it out. They give up. So this isn't an excuse. This isn't to say, hey, we shouldn't even try because I think we should try. This is what we're called to, but it's worth acknowledging that we're probably not going to get all of it, and that's okay. We should get more and more and more. As we grow closer and closer to the heart of God, we should get more and more. But there's going to be stuff in it that's rough. So as we move on just a little bit, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, this is near the end of the first chapter. It says, And God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And I stop here because I think to understand the big story of the Bible, we should meditate on what does it mean to be very good because I don't think we get it. Because the world today is not very good, I think we have a really hard time of figuring out what very good meant. Very good, no death, no decay, no destruction. As far as we can tell, Adam and Eve would have lived forever in perfect communion with the God who created them. It says that they walked with him in the garden. Deep community, no bad bosses, No bad traffic. I spent my whole week in California. No bad traffic. No acne. If mosquitoes existed, they're not like obnoxious. It's very good. But it didn't stay that way. So a lot of times we talk again about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In the fall, we're told that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in doing so, they broke the universe. The the scripture doesn't use the phrase broke the universe, but you think about how it was and how it is. Their rebellion fundamentally changed the nature of existence as we know it today. Because of their rebellion, we have the coronavirus. Too many of us are dissatisfied at work. Our cats pee on the carpet. Our kids start off life inherently selfish from the moment they're born. Ticks spread disease, mental illness, rages, wars go on and on. People get sick and they die, whether it's little or big annoyance. All of it came from the fall. And this is never the way it was meant to be. Never the way it was meant to be. And I think this is why death bothers us so much. Because we know it wasn't supposed to be like this. And what stinks is it didn't happen by accident. It's the result of Adam and Eve rejecting the God who made them. And that means, by the way, that even though we don't like to talk about it in church very much, there's some element of the wrath of God that comes as a result of that. And that's a message that you see repeated in the Bible as well. And we can't fix the problem. The Bible is really clear that this problem is so big... 
that even though we caused it, we can't fix it. So that's creation, and that's the fall. And that takes us up to the massive chapter 3 of the Bible. So, how do you make sense of all of the rest of the Old Testament? Because I'm not going to go through it in that much detail. I think all of the rest of the Old Testament, almost without exception, but there are some exceptions, but you can take almost all the rest of the Old Testament and put it in one of two categories. So if you're trying to make sense of the rest of it, it's either talking about the promise, which I'll get to in a minute, which are hints of the redemption to come, or it's talking about the need for the promise. The promise begins with this. Genesis chapter 3.15, this is God talking to the serpent that we believe is Satan and saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, if I'm saying that all the rest of the, Bible, of the Old Testament can be put into one of two categories and one of them deals with the promise, that's a weird passage to start the promise part off with. It's, it's kind of cryptic. But consider this. Because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're very confident that this passage hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And because of textual criticism and so forth, I think you can make a, a statement that we're also really, really confident that this passage hasn't changed in somewhere between 1,000 and maybe 1,500 years because we think it's about 1,500 years B.C. when it was written. And I would argue that it probably was passed orally for at least let's say 6,000, well, let's say 4,500 years before that, maybe. But let's just be conservative and say that for 3,000 years, this passage has been passed down from generation to generation. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast three days ago. And for 3,000 years, we have been passing this promise down through the years. Why? Why would we bother? Because if you believe Scripture, since the beginning of human history... We've seen that passage as a promise that a day will come when God himself is going to send a redeemer or a Messiah, a savior, a Christ who would come and save us from ourselves. For 3,000 years, at least minimum, I'd say six, we've been passing this promise down through the generations. And to be clear, that promise is Jesus. So, over and over and over again, in the Old Testament, that promise gets repeated, it gets built out, it gets expanded upon, and I'm, I'm going to use this word future echoed. It gets hinted at, at how, how it's going to be redeemed, or, or fulfilled in the future. So, I'm going to walk through some examples of how, it, how that happens in the Old Testament, and if you're not really familiar with the Bible, I may lose you here, and I apologize that's so. If you know the Bible, I hope this helps connect some dots for you. So, this begins... Just with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve reject God, one of the first things that happens is there is an animal that is sacrificed so they can be clothed. And here we see a hint that our salvation is going to require serious sacrifice. When Noah gets in the ark, it is God who shuts the ark up behind him and seals it, showing us that it is God who is going to save us. We see that promise built out when God makes a one-sided covenant with Abraham And tells him that through him, all nations will be blessed. And Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. We see the promise when Abraham takes his son Isaac to be sacrificed, and God gives a sacrifice in his place. We see it in the picture of the Passover lamb and how the sacrifice of the lamb saves the Israelites from the angel of death. We see it in the picture of Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant. 
in Jeremiah's prophecy that a day will come when God himself will rip out our hearts of stone and replace them with a heart of flesh. And there's so many more examples. A huge part of the Old Testament is there to remind us and promise us and give us these echoes of a day that will come when God himself is going to solve our problem. But there's a second track. So the second track of that is the need for the promise. I don't know if you've thought of the Old Testament this way, but in many ways you can think of the Old Testament as like a set of case studies or a set of scenarios that demonstrate to us that there is no situation, no situation that can play out with us on our own becoming the people we were meant to be. There's no situation where we as a people will seek out and achieve holiness and perfection and righteousness. The problem is that we are stubborn and arrogant people, and it takes a really long time for God to demonstrate to us in a way so that we can't say, oh, 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 but if only you had given us this chance, if only it had worked out like that, if only. So for thousands of years, he works through the potential variations to demonstrate to us that it doesn't matter Chance after chance, he gives us to desperately see that we need him to fulfill his promise. So like we did before, just some examples of how that works out. So you would think that if Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, it's going to make a lasting impression on them and their kids. The very first generation, Cain and Abel. Pretty clear that there's still lessons to be learned. After that, it's not, it's not exactly clear how God is interacting with people in that first period of time up to about Noah. But what is, what is clear is he, he seems to have given people a, a set of like autonomy and being able to, people were working together and they were cooperating together. And that leads to a time where it says that every intention of every heart was evil all the time. So we have the flood and the destruction of all of that evil. So you would think, well, maybe a global catastrophe will bring repentance. All you have to do is look at Noah's daughters and their relationship with him to see, well, that's, that's a big no. So then you have a time where God calls a people unto himself and says, well, before I didn't necessarily have a chosen people. So he reaches out to Abraham and creates a chosen people for himself and says, I'm going to work through you. But if you're in the Bible reading challenge stuff, we've been going through the life and times of Abraham and his kids. It's pretty clear that there's, <laughs> there's a lot messed up there. So God gives us the law. He interacts with us in a way that says, look, here is exactly what it means to be my people. Here's exactly what you must do to honor me and to be righteous. But the very generation of people that were given the law end up rejecting God, and they suffer wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they rejected him. He allows us to be ruled by judges and allows us to be ruled by kings, by good kings, by bad kings, to be conquerors, to be conquered, to face and escape capture in exile, to be exiled, to be returned from exile, to have prophets who are loud and speaking the word of God, to have prophets who are warning us, to, who are encouraging us, then to have periods of silence where it seems like God has gone away. He allows us to see miracles and to see him in our midst as a column of fire and a column of smoke and to sense him just going quiet. And none of those, or all the middle variations in between, 
ever were enough because this isn't a problem we can solve. And we needed that time to know that we needed to be rescued. Now, this isn't just like my interpretation. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is telling the church at Corinth, he's given them a bunch of examples of the Old Testament. And then he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he gives them some more examples of stuff that happened in the Old Testament and says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So I think that's the Old Testament. Creation, fall, and then two tracks that run parallel through all the rest of the Old Testament. And there's, there are lots of things you can gain from the Old Testament. There's a lot of value in studying the, the, the smaller stories. But at a big level, I think, you, again, the Old Testament is giving us the story of the promise and then reminding us of our need for the promise. So that leads us to the New Testament. The New Testament finally gives us the redemption and the restoration stories that we've been waiting for. Because in the New Testament, we finally get to see Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise from the Old Testament. So the New Testament is organized into four big parts. We've got the Gospels, the History, Acts, Letters, and Revelation. So the Gospels are the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. History, the Acts, is basically the story of the early church and how the early church was founded. And then we move to the letters. Now, most of the New Testament are letters written to the churches that you see started in Acts. And I think you can take the letters and, and kind of break them up into three parts. So as you're trying to understand the letters that are written in the New Testament, I think part of them is like they're explaining the Old Testament or Jesus' teachings, just like those passages I read a second ago. And then we have two other things that the fancy words are indicatives and imperatives. So the indicatives indicate who we are. So a lot of the content in the letters are telling us because of what Jesus did, this is who you are. You are the body. This is what it means. Jesus has changed you. He's given you a new heart. This is what that looks like. So the indicatives indicate who we are. And then there's imperatives. And the imperatives, imperatives like it's a command. The imperatives tell us what to do. Not do this so that you will be accepted, but because you are accepted, do this. And I think once you see that in the New Testament, it's really, really hard to unsee. Because if you look at the structure of most of the letters, most of them are set up in a way that gives you all the indicatives at the front, and then they give you the imperatives at the end. So they build it up and say, this is who you are. This is what Jesus has done. Now do that. And that's why when you read the New Testament, there's so many becauses and therefores and sos and nows and stuff like that because they build up a picture with indicatives and then give you the imperative. And then we have Revelation, the story of the end times. So, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the big story of the Bible. There is a promise that must be fulfilled, and then we have the New Testament that gives us this glorious picture of how Jesus has fulfilled that and the hope and the promise that is to come. Now, I, I worry, I'll be honest, that a little bit, that as I, as I take Scripture and I break it down like that, 
that it's boring. Or if I give you this tool that I'm going to give you in a minute, that it just makes, it makes the Bible too academic in a way. And that you might feel like I'm, I'm tearing the spirit out of it in some way by giving you kind of an intellectual way to think of it. And if I've done that, I'm sorry, because that is not the intention at all. Because the goal, I want you to see the Bible and just have a continuous wow moment. I mean, think about this. Uh, for those of you who've been in church for a while, and it's okay, you can yell out this answer. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul, right. Okay, multiple people said that. That's great. So don't have to yell this one out. But who's the first emperor of China? The first king of England? You might know George Washington is the first president of the U.S., but I bet there's more people in this room that know for sure that Solomon is the third king of Israel than you do that Thomas Jefferson is the third president of the U.S., For over 3,000 years, God has been shepherding this story so that you can know it, so that I can know it. And this is a story that should rock our world on a regular basis. I mean, when we think about creation and the mind-blowingness of, like, God existing before time or just looking out and seeing a sunset, I mean, the awe and the wonder that is in creation. There's an, an author that I read, though, that he says when he thinks about sin that he finds himself lying on the floor prostrate with his arms out because of how small he feels, um, how low his sin makes him feel. So maybe some fear and some trembling and some shame as we think about sin and the stories of Noah and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and stuff like that, but then amazement, again, that there's a promise that has been continued. Maybe, maybe feeling crushed as we realize that God stepped into this world on our behalf to solve this problem and thinking about what he's done for us, overwhelmed with responsibility when you think that he has made us his body and and the place he has for us, and then hope and expectation and longing when you realize how he's empowered us to work through this and that he's here and we have a mission and there's more beyond this. It's even like this story is awesome, okay? So if if my tool and stuff that I'm going to give you next diminishes that, This story is awesome, and I hope that as home groups, as you study it together, you can get some of the awe and the wonder from it. So, each week, when you study the Bible as a home group, or maybe not each week, because you should have potlucks and you should go out and do stuff together too, but as you study the Bible, um, I want to give you a tool. Um, If you've been part of the theology program in the past, this comes from... Got to give them credit. It comes from Credo House Ministries, their theology program. It'll be a little repetitious if you've heard this before, but a lot of you don't know this yet. So one reason I think we should walk through this is because one of the methods, that I'm, the, the one I'm going to show you here for studying the Bible, has three steps. And you should go through the steps in order. Step one, step two, step three. The problem is that my experience with, with Bible studies is a lot of Bible studies have one step, That's it. They begin there, they end there. And that step begins with one question. And that question is, what does this mean to you? Somebody reads the passage and then asks the question, what does this mean to you? And I think that is a terrible question. If I could, I think I would give every one of our home group leaders a taser. And the next time somebody asks the question, they would tase them. Um, Now, if you're on the podcast, I should probably take that. I don't know if I can put that like on the internet, right? And I wouldn't really do it, but this is a terrible question. And the reason it's a terrible question, and, and honestly, I, I should back up. This might be your normal question. 
And so if this is the question you're asking, I'm not saying you're a terrible person because I don't think we've been taught like what this means and what it leads to. But the problem is that the Bible has a meaning. God wrote it for a reason. And when we ask the question, what does this mean to you? What we're generally doing is we're deciding, what do I think? And then we're imposing it back on the text. We're not trying to figure out what God said. We're figuring out what do we think. And then we push it back on Scripture. And I think we need to work the other way around. Instead of asking, what does this mean to me? We should ask, how does this apply to me? Find God's meaning and then figure out how it applies to us. So we start on the other side of the question and say, what did this mean then? Every book of the Bible, everyone, was written by someone to, to someone for a reason. And we should figure out what that is. So at this stage, we ask questions like, who wrote this? Why did they write it? Who was the audience? What would the audience have thought about that? What is the cultural context? What is the genre? Is this meant to be fiction? Is it meant to be literal? Is it meant to be figurative? Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Is, is it prescriptive? Is it trying to tell us what to do? Or is it trying to tell us what people did? This is not rocket science. It may sound like rocket science, but the nice thing is that all those questions have already been answered. People have been looking at this stuff for a long time. There's not a lot of questions about this step. All you really have to do is get a good ESV study Bible or go online and look at the Bible project, that we've, the links that we've passed out in the past. Um, it just it doesn't come for free. You don't wake up one, man, one morning, read your Bible, and all this knowledge magically pops into your head. Right? If, if you want to be a car mechanic, you've got to study some stuff about cars. And if you want to be a doctor, you have to like, study doctor stuff whatever that is, right? And if you want to read and understand the Bible, you've got to do a little homework to understand how it fits in. But it's not rocket science. Once you have that, then you look at the timeless principle because the Bible is more than a medical textbook. It is the inspired word of God. God's word through the authors with all of their personalities and everything else that come through in that, and it's given to us so that we can, we can learn, right? So we got to figure out what this timeless principle is that God desires for us to know from the passage. Not every passage is going to have a, a really easy thing, but this is the thing that, that transcends time or place or culture or the, the author or the audience. When you get that, then we can ask that question, how does this apply to us? So when you go through both of those, then we can say, here's what it meant Here's the big idea that went behind it. Here's how it applies to us. So as an example, I would suggest to you, and there's, not everybody agrees, we'll talk about, we could talk about that too, but I would suggest to you that most of the passages in the New Testament that are talking about head coverings are passages that are really talking about modesty. So the timeless principle is a principle of modesty. And then the question becomes, how does modesty apply to us today? Does it look the same at Oak City as it would at Chosen Generation? Does it look the same for men as it would for women? Does it look the same in the U.S. as it would for India? Like, how do these things go together? And those are conversations that we can and we should have in home groups. It's not always easy to determine number two and number three. So I, I will just tell you that. It can be difficult 
to figure out the timeless principle. And some passages will have more than one timeless principle, and some of them you might have to keep, like, backing out of it, get out of a word and go to a verse or get out of a verse and go to a a chapter and get out of a chapter and, like, go to a book sometimes to figure out what the principle that you're supposed to get is. To figure out the timeless principle, it's useful to remember that um, our faith is not five years old. Our faith is 2,000 years old, and God has been working in his people for a long time. And so leveraging those who've come before us is really useful for figuring out the timeless principle. For the application side, it's one of the reasons that home groups are so astoundingly, massively useful is because we get to leverage each other and each other's, each other's backgrounds and experiences and come together to understand how to, how to do that. So I'm, I'm excited. Like, I'm really excited both about the Bible, but I'm excited that we're back together again meeting as home groups and that you have the opportunity on a regular basis to study the Bible together with one another. If there's anything that Dan or I can do to help you all in your home groups, please let us know. If there's anything like about this big story of the Bible that you're interested in, um, catch, catch me, catch Jeff, catch any of the staff, because we'd love to talk about the story. Um, one of the things we're going to ask you to do in your home groups this week is try to use this tool to go through a passage on your own. And so you might think about how would you do that? Think about the Bible readings you've been doing. If you're in the, doing the Bible reading challenge this week, if you're not, y'all, it's never too late to start this. It's reading through the Bible in a year together as a church. But, or reading through the New Testament because we've got two of them. But think about, like, which passage would I like to look at together with my home group? So, can you pray with me? Band is welcome to come back up. Father God, there is no one like you. And there is... There is no story like your story. I thank you that you have protected your message for so long. And I thank you that it has such power to change the world. I thank you that your message doesn't end with us right here, right now, but that your message continues. And you have given us hope for the day will come and things will be restored truly to the way that you desire. I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be your body in the world. And I ask, God, that you give us the power and the strength and the vision and the opportunities to to do that in a way that brings glory and honor to you now and forever. You're an amazing God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.